wisdom. Is this something that is purely subjective? Is it simply hacks to succeed at life? Life can be so confusing and disorienting. The world is full of chaos and complexity. What we know just doesn't seem enough. As we navigate life, we need the knowledge and skill to live well. We need wisdom. The book of Proverbs was written to fill that need. What does it say about wisdom? How should we read this complex yet necessary book? In it we'll find not only our need for wisdom, but also where to find wisdom. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how to read the book of Proverbs. I'm JC Schroeder, and this is Bite Size Seminary. Let's dive in. As we begin to look at the book of Proverbs, I want to start with an overview of the genre and the book as a whole, then look at wisdom, what it is, and how it fits into the overall message and structure of the book of Proverbs. First, what is the book of Proverbs? Well, it's a collection of wisdom sayings that teach us how to live a good and successful life. Now, when we think of an individual proverb, of what a proverb is, we typically think of it as some short, pithy, or memorable saying. All languages and cultures have proverbs, these short, pithy little sayings. I like the one, better late than never. That's kind of one that I just kind of live by. When we see the word that we translate as proverb in Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's actually more open and is used to describe several different types of statements. So when we think of those short little statements, nuggets, that we typically think of as a proverb, those are mostly in chapters 10 through 29. But there are other sections to the book of Proverbs, and this is where you have that more open, general sort of use of this term proverb in the Old Testament. Now, one of the other things that it's essential for us as we are trying to read Proverbs is to think about how poetry works in the Old Testament. Now, when I think of poetry and English poetry, I typically think of something like rhyming or that it would be in some sort of verse. I'm not very poetic, so that's kind of my base level way of thinking about it. The Old Testament does not use its poetry in that way. Its main element is something called parallelism. Parallelism is when you have two lines of text that are, you guessed it, parallel to one another. The first line will make an initial statement, and that second line will continue the thought, but yet advance it. So it seems as if it's repeating itself, kind of like when you're writing a college paper, you're just trying to hit your word count. That's not what the authors are doing. That second line is to advance the line of the first line. So for instance, if you look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, the first line is, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then the second line is, and lean not on your own understanding. So they're saying very similar things, but that second line is advancing the thought. It's further clarifying and describing what it means to trust in the Lord, is that it's a reliance upon him 
and not on our own thinking and our own wisdom that we have, but on his wisdom. So when we are looking at the book of Proverbs and Hebrew poetry in general, you have to pay attention to those parallel lines, to that parallelism of Old Testament poetry. So coming back to this question of what is a proverb, Tremper Longman III defines it this way. He says, a proverb expresses an insight, observation, or advice that has been popularly accepted as a general truth, end quote. Now, he's got a couple of important points here that we need to note for Proverbs is that these are general truths. They're not promises. So when the Lord says in the book of Proverbs, X will happen, that's a general observation about the normal way that the world works, not a promise of you will get this or this will happen to you. It's when we expect Proverbs to be a promise, that's when we get into some hermeneutical, as well as some just practical application problems. If the Lord doesn't fulfill that quote-unquote promise, then we feel as if the Lord has failed us. But that's really our misunderstanding of what a proverb is. General truths, not promises. Additionally, we need wisdom in how to interpret and apply proverbs. Because they are general, and because they are not these just straight promises, we need wisdom in how to bring them into our own lives and how they function for us, specifically for us who live in a 21st century American or whatever context, which is different than the biblical times as well. Now, one other thing that we need to note about Proverbs and these individual statements is that these have a context to them. When I used to read the book of Proverbs, I thought of them as just kind of like random little sayings that are all kind of stitched together. And there's some sense of truth to that. But they do have a context. There is a larger framework to the book as a whole, as well as to the individual sections that give shape to how we understand those individual proverbial sayings. So, Pay attention not only to the verses in front of and after the individual pro- proverb that you are looking at, but also to the book as a whole. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, in terms of who wrote the book of Proverbs, we typically associate the book of Proverbs with Solomon, this very wise king of Israel. But we also have other individuals who are listed as authors within the book, such as Agur and Lemuel, and there probably are others included as well. But there are not only authors who sat down to write or to dictate the Proverbs that we have, there are also evidence of editors that work to compile these other proverbial sayings into a cohesive whole. Take, for instance, Proverbs 25, 1. It talks about the men of Hezekiah are compiling the words of Solomon. So there is some level of editing going on and bringing these wisdom sayings, these wisdom traditions into the book of Proverbs under the theology of following the one true God, Yahweh. Now, this brings up an important point that Israel is not the only one that is thinking about these Proverbs and thinking about these wisdom sort of questions. You have Israel thinking about this, and we have more text than just the book of Proverbs. We have Proverbs in other places in the Old Testament, and we have other wisdom literature throughout the Old Testament. 
but you also have wisdom text from Egypt and Mesopotamia. What we see in the book of Proverbs is that not only are Israel's sages, they're wise men, not only are they thinking about the same sorts of questions as their Egyptian or Mesopotamian counterparts, but they are also engaging with their specific texts. And sometimes this leads them to full sail adopt uh, something from those texts. So for instance, they will almost like cut and paste something from their text into the book of Proverbs and into scripture. Take for instance, these two passages next to each other. Here we have Proverbs 22 verses 22 through 23a. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. And notice how this is paralleled with the wisdom of Amenemope. Now, this is a wisdom text that predates the book of Proverbs. And it says, beware of robbing a wretch of attacking a cripple. So you can see that it's very similar. And it almost seems as if the biblical author of Proverbs is looking at this text and taking its thoughts and putting it into the biblical text here as well. So there is evidence of adoption. But as you can also see at the second line that we'll, that we'll read here in a second, is that not only are they adopting the text, but they are also adapting it within the specific worldview and theology of Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. So for the Lord, this is what Proverbs says, for the Lord will plead their cause, whereas the other Egyptian text has, it is the moon who declares his crime. So this is showing that it's not just clear, always cut and paste, but there is an adoption and an adaptation into the biblical worldview. So what both of these examples show is that the book of Proverbs is not only aware of these other traditions and texts, but utilizes them, brings them into the biblical text, but also adapts them into the biblical worldview. So the book of Proverbs is within this larger wisdom tradition, but it is still the biblical perspective, the biblical worldview, which is committed to the one true God of Israel. Now, as we take a step back and look at the book of Proverbs as a whole, we'll see that it's not just short, pithy sayings all the way through. There is a structure to the book as a whole. It begins in the first chapter with the first seven verses with a preamble. And then we have this very long prologue that introduces the whole book. Chapters 10 through 29 is what we think of as the typical short, pithy sayings. They don't seem like they have much context. They seem just sort of random collected sayings. But those are framed and introduced by this lengthy prologue in chapters 1 verse 8 all the way through the end of chapter 9. That gives us a good vision for how we should understand these later pithy sayings. You can also see on the screen there that there are a variety of kind of subsections, Proverbs of Solomon, part one, the 30 sayings of the wise, further sayings of the wise, Proverbs of Solomon, part two. Then we have these two sort of concluding sections, the sayings of Agur and the sayings of Lemuel in chapters 30 and 31. So that gives us a broad overview of the genre and the book of Proverbs as a whole. But now we need to think about what is wisdom? We open this episode by talking about the fact that we need wisdom. But what is wisdom and how does that definition integrate with the larger message of Proverbs? 
that's what we're going to look at now. I don't know about you, but I love The Lord of the Rings. And I love this scene in the first film where Gandalf is going to his master, to Sauron the Wise, because he has learned of the, the One Ring and he's concerned, what should we do? We have to fight against the bad guy Sauron. And after all of this explanation, Gandalf is shocked to find that Sauron says, you know, we should join with Sauron, the bad guy. Against the power of Mordor, there can be no victory. We must join with Sauron. It would be wise, my friend. Tell me, friend, when did Saruman the wise abandon reason for madness? And what I love about the scene is that it brings to light this question of what is wisdom? What is wise? Because in some respects, what Saruman is saying, it is wise to join forces with the bad guy because he sees that you're just going to lose anyways. So that doesn't seem smart. So let's just join forces. There's a certain logic to what he's saying of it would be wise to join forces with the bad guys. But Gandalf highlights for us that wisdom is not just about this shrewd calculation, this logic of laying out what's best for me. There's a moral component to this concept of wisdom. And that's the perspective of scripture as well. There is a moral component to wisdom. Now, when we think of what is wisdom, the word is actually quite broad. It's typically, it's kind of base definition is a skill. We see that the word is used in Exodus 28 verse 3 to refer to the skill that the Lord gives to the builders of the tabernacle to construct it, to create all the tapestries, all of that. So this relates and comes down to our thinking of wisdom as a skill for living life. And one way I think that we typically think about wisdom is almost of like finding hacks for living our lives. And so it almost gives this idea or this definition of shrewd living. And if we take that to its end, we almost end to a point like Saruman, where it would be wise to join forces with the evil dark lord. But is that really wise? This is where the biblical idea of wisdom is, comes in and is so powerful. The book of Proverbs is clear that wisdom, this skill for living a successful life, finds its origin, finds its foundation in the Lord. Notice what Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then even look at Proverbs 9 verse 10, which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So here, the fear of the Lord is this starting point and is the essential nature of wisdom and really defines what it means to live a successful life. A successful life, according to biblical standards, is not that you have everything that you want, you have peace, security, and health, and everything. It's faithfulness to the Lord. It's having that right relationship with him. When the Bible uses the term, the fear of the Lord, it almost has this connotation to our ears that God is distant from us, that we should fear him, like be afraid of him. And I don't think that's the quite the right nuance of this particular term. For instance, the fear of the Lord has everything to do with our relationship and our vision of the Lord. It's recognizing that he is God and I am not. 
another way that is constantly used to define the fear of the Lord is this reverential awe. It's recognizing that he's God that I am not. And so it, when we recognize who the Lord is and we recognize who we are rightly, then we are able to orient and draw near to the Lord in this right relationship. It's not about a distance that's created. It's about bringing us close. Because if we don't recognize who we truly are, we can lower God and elevate ourselves and put us on equal platter with, with the Lord. That's not the right relationship with him. That's not recognizing of who he is. So the base starting point, the foundation of wisdom is to fear the Lord, is to recognize who he is, who we are, and to live rightly in awe and reverential awe and worship towards him. So wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs and according to scripture, is more than just shrewd living of hacks for a successful life. It's about our right relationship with him. I like this quote from Longman and Dillard. They say this, the presupposition of all wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, relationship precedes ethics. So it's our relationship that forms the way that we live, the ethics that we have. That's the foundation of our relationship and of wisdom. Now, all of this is critical to understanding the overall structure of the book of Proverbs and the overall meaning and message of the book of Proverbs and what this means with wisdom. So that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the foundation for wisdom. And this is baked into the overall message and the overall structure of Proverbs. Now, if we jump back to our structure, we want to look at this prologue. We mentioned this before. The prologue here in chapters one through nine, it's going to serve as a paradigm to read the rest of the book. It's going to circle back and forth of here is what wisdom is. See its value. See its beauty. You must attain it. You must not be foolish and run away from it and cling to something else. You must live according to God's standards. In chapter nine, we have the height of the prologue and its conclusion as it leads us into the rest of the book. Here, the author has personified wisdom and folly as two contrasting women. So it's not just about making good choices or bad choices. It's a theological lens. So here we have Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And interestingly, they both are sitting at the highest point of of their houses and of the city. So it has this theological lens that in ancient times, you would typically place your God, your deity, at the highest point of the city. So here, when the author is highlighting that wisdom is sitting at the highest place or Lady Folly is sitting at the highest place. It's this contrast, it's this battle between the one true God, Yahweh, who's associated with wisdom and the false gods, which is associated with folly. So this whole thing has to do with not just of will you be wise or skillful in your life? Will you be shrewd in your living? But which God will you serve? Will you define your life according to God's standards, to his wisdom, and follow him, follow Lady Wisdom? Or will you go to something else, some other God that has a different standard, a different definition, a different way of wisdom? That's Lady Folly. Longman and Dillard talk about this passage in this way. The alternative between wisdom and folly is more than 
how to get along and advance in the world. It is a matter of life and death. So here in the book of Proverbs, the author is desperately trying to plead with us to adhere to the Lord, to turn our hearts to him, to follow his way of life, his wisdom, and find the good life, to find that true successful life according to God's standards, to not go after the false gods. And again, that sort of conclusion that we have here in chapter 9 gives us this sight, this paradigm for how we read the rest of the book. So when we encounter specific little statements in the rest of the book of Proverbs, it has to be viewed through that lens of chapter 9 and the prologue of chapters 1 through 9, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that we must be faithful to the Lord. And if we're being honest, sometimes in our experience, we may feel like living according to God's wisdom is not wise and does not bring flourishing in our lives. Maybe we only see the next step and and it just seems hard. But we need and have something outside of ourselves to tell us this is the right path. This is how to truly live. This is the good life. Continue on. Hang on. Don't give up. That's why Proverbs is there to teach us and encourage us to take and hold onto God's wisdom and find what it means to truly live.